This morning we're wrapping up our study of Advent. I think this is week number five in in studying Advent. Advent, of course, in the church calendar, in many Christian traditions, means coming, the waiting for a coming, the coming of Christ. And the studies we've done in the last month have consecutively been on glorious topics, joy, because God is the God of joy. He's full of joy. God's never in a bad mood. If you tend to be getting a bad mood sometimes, well, connect with God because he's always in a good mood. He's, a, he's full of joy. He's, he's the God of all hope, and we've studied hope as part of Advent, the hope of the coming of Christ. The, the prophets of Israel knew that God would keep his promises to send the Savior. They had to wait a fairly long time, but God kept the promises, and that's why they had hope, and Advent has been about hope. It's about peace, because the the conflicts, whether it's governmental, political, national, or even emotional inside ourselves, peace is what Christ, God sent Christ to bring. And of course, love. Experiencing God's love toward us, believing something that basic that he does love us. You know, smile, God loves you. It's a bumper sticker, and it's easy to snicker at that and say, well, we're we're trivializing it. Well, okay, but the love of God for us is the truth that will set us free as we ponder it, and that's part of what Advent is. Now, today we're wrapping up that four-part study with something that we think is a way of collecting all four of those themes together, and it's this. Advent is about God sending Christ for a reason, namely to make all things new. He's doing it in stages. He begins by renewing people, and then over time, as missions go forth, there's ways God will renew cultures and serve to bring redemption in society. And at the very end of the age, at the end of the great story, Christ is going to return a second time and quite literally renew everything. It's one of the great hopes of the Christian church. So that renewing began when Christ arrived the first time at what we now call Christmas. God sending Christ to make all things new. And a very, very good scripture to ponder as we study this part of Christ's mission, namely to make all things new, is what we have on the screen. This is from Luke chapter 2. It's a bit of a favorite for me. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, a variant of Simon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the comfort of Israel. Many translations of the Bible use the word consolation there. Um, I prefer comfort for a few reasons. One is that it shows the echo in Luke's account back to Isaiah 40. You may remember that glorious chapter. It begins with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Tell her that her time of slavery is ended. Her sin is atoned for. 
And Isaiah wrapped that up in two words. He repeated for emphasis, comfort, comfort my people. That's in Isaiah centuries before the coming of Jesus. Simeon, being a godly man, knew the book of Isaiah. And because he knew it and believed that he was waiting for God to do that, to bring the comfort, the comfort of Israel. For Simeon, that comfort meant the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah was the comfort of Israel. And he's the comfort of you. That's why we need him so much. Waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting by the power of the Spirit. You know, there's, there's different kinds of waiting. You ask my dear and very patient wife if her husband is good at waiting, and she will say he assuredly is not good at waiting. <laughs> Waiting in line, waiting in a queue, waiting in traffic. I, I get all steamed up. Well, Simeon wasn't like that. He was waiting as he relied on the Holy Spirit. That's a godly, God-honoring kind of waiting. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by that Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen something else. The Lord's Christ. The comfort Isaiah had promised, the Holy Spirit had told Simeon, you'll see it in your lifetime. And one day, a peasant couple from way up north, in a less civilized, less sophisticated part of Israel's society, it was called Galilee. Some kind of looked on the Galileans as country hicks. So one day this country, rural, poor couple come toddling into the Jerusalem temple carrying a baby. He can tell by the way they're dressed. These are not wealthy, upper-class people. And they're carrying a baby. They have come to have him dedicated. The circumcision, which of course would have gone on, has already happened. It's earlier in the Gospel of Luke. But now they're coming to dedicate him And you know, the custom Christian churches have of dedicating children is actually very biblical. If you've dedicated your children, or if you're thinking of it, here's two pretty good examples, Joseph and Mary dedicating Jesus. That's a pretty good example to follow. And he he knew he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then this peasant girl comes into the temple carrying a child. And it's like in that moment, the Holy Spirit taps Simeon on the shoulder. Simeon, remember what I've been telling you all these years, you'd see the comfort. There he is. And he came into the temple, and I skipped the most important words, verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. Good way to go to church, in the Spirit. And he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, the dedication, verse 28, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Apparently Simeon was quite well on in years by this time. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation. The comfort. 
is wrapped up in this child. The salvation of Israel is wrapped up in this child. The salvation you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. It wasn't just for ethnic Israel. All peoples. 32. A light. Oh, wait a minute. He's comfort. He's salvation. He's light. If you're in darkness, this story has good news for you. Because this child came to bring light. This Savior came to bring light. Light for revelation to the Gentiles. That could also just be translated to the nations. And, and for glory to your people, Israel. God sent Christ. What we take from this amazing little passage is that God sent Christ to make all things new. Here's where I get that, because the phrase all things new is not there in those verses. And yet it is there. Let's see. The first thing Luke wants us to take away here is, that, is to look at what Simeon was waiting for. He was waiting, Luke tells us, for the comfort of Israel. The comfort of Israel. Who needs comfort? People that are hurting need comfort. You can probably remember being picked up and comforted by your parents, by your dad, your mom. And they comfort you. The, little, the image that we have there. He was waiting for the Lord's Christ. And these, there's five things the Luke lists here. And they all wrap up as one thing. He was waiting by the power of the Spirit for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. He was waiting for the promised salvation God had said he would send. He was waiting for light. I think one of the most physically painful moments I have ever had in my 69 years was when I was traveling once in England. I was staying overnight at someone's house. Had to get up in the middle of the night as older men sometimes do. Make my way down the hall. And in the process, because it wasn't my house, it was somebody else's house. I had no idea where I was. And they had all the lights completely out. There was nothing. It was literally pitch dark. And I stubbed my toe, barefoot of course, in the middle of the night. And I was sure I had broken it. Turned out I hadn't. But it was mightily sore. And it took me a fair while to fall back to sleep. Because I had hit it on the edge of a dresser or something that I didn't know where it was. Why didn't I know where things were? Because I was in the dark. (laughs) There's a downside to being in the dark. You can't see what's going on. You don't know what's out there. What's God's answer for people who are in the dark? Light. Simeon knew what he was waiting for. It was the comfort of Israel in the form of a person, and that person, Christ, would bring light. Light for the nations, Luke says, the Gentiles. The fifth thing was glory. He would bring glory. Glory was something God imparted to Israel because they were his chosen people. His glory was manifest over, remember the temple, the tabernacle out in the desert, that, that mighty tent that Moses set up. And the physical, visible, tangible glory of God in the form of fire hovered above that tent because God was in it. Must have been an amazing sight. 
His glory dwelt in their midst. When they, over many centuries, kept rebelling against God and worshiping other gods, you know what happened? The glory up and left. But not forever. That was the Babylonian exile. But God brought the people back to the land eventually. That was part of the comfort. That was the first installment. But now the glory is coming back. Not yet in the form of fire like over the tabernacle, but in the form of this child. Simeon saw it. That baby in Mary's arms was the glory of the Lord returning to his people. That's what's going on here. This is what Simeon was waiting for. If we wrapped all those images up, the good heading over it is the comfort of Israel. And the good heading over that is God coming to make all things new. All things new. One of the ways Christ comes now to make all things new, we don't see this in the birth narrative that we're studying today about Simeon. We see it once Jesus has his public ministry up and running. He gives us back the future. At a later date, perhaps we can study this amazing little story in detail. It's one of my favorites. It's in Luke chapter 7. Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee, which is itself notable because the Pharisees, as a religious group, did not get along with Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't like the way he did things and said things. But one Pharisee invited Jesus to his house. While they were reclining at table, a woman in the neighborhood who didn't have a very good reputation morally, and deservedly so, She'd had a life of sin. She boldly comes into the house. Now, why? what motivates her to come in? This is an intriguing thing. Jesus, of course, is a publicly religious, devout man. And he's in the home of a Pharisee who were not known for having compassionate hearts toward messed up, needy people. And she comes into that environment. What makes her come in there? What we find out as we study the, the study of the story, she comes in there, she gets down on her knees next to Jesus at the table, and she's weeping. And she takes a, an alabaster jar full of perfume, and she pours the perfume along with her own tears onto Christ's feet. This is such a poignant scene. I, I get emotional every time I read it and even more when I preach it. Try to imagine this. The, the tears are flowing enough that they served along with the perfume to wash Jesus' feet. Jesus, because he's Jesus, can see her heart. He knows why she has come, why she has braved the sense inevitably of feeling exposed or criticized or her sin will be on display, people will talk. She knows all that. So what has motivated her to step over all those insecurities and what-ifs and all that to come and do this dramatic statement of worship to Jesus? It's this. She knows she needs forgiveness. She knows she needs salvation. See, the Pharisee didn't realize that, that he needed to get saved. 
He thought because he was so scrupulously obedient to the law of Moses, that's how he'd be saved. Well, no. We're saved through a savior. She was ahead of the Pharisee on that point, this lady. So she's weeping, washing Christ's feet with her tears. Jesus says this to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. When we study this story, we often highlight, understandably so, the first of the two things Jesus says to her. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. We all need to hear him say that in our hearts. Your sins are forgiven. But that's not all he says. He says, go in peace. In that culture, go in peace, go in shalom, is what he would have said, meant start over again. I'm giving you permission to just re-begin, to start your life over again. Um, The past isn't going to stand in the way anymore. Go in peace. He is giving her back what she thought she'd never have again, and that is a future. We all have memories that when we remember them, make us cringe. I call it our cringe list. I suspect my cringe list is longer than many of yours, but we could compare notes. (laughs) Things that when you remember them, something you said to somebody, something you did, you neglected to keep in touch with someone that you said you would. I did that when we moved to England. There was people here in Winnipeg, you know, I'm going to keep in touch, I'm going to email, you know, and I didn't. And then later, all kinds of hurt feelings emerged that were landing at my doorstep because I had let the relationship drop. I think about that, that there's a couple of people in one family, and I cringe. Again, in those years where we were away, I, I did lots of traveling and, uh, over in the UK. And there's one church that invited me in to do a series of studies on something. And I didn't quite get on target with what the pastor was really sort of thinking in this series of lectures. It was on Wednesday evenings for about five or six weeks. And I, I way overshot, it was way up in the academic stratosphere. That's what I was, I was bringing. And the people were going, huh, huh, huh. And the pastor was very polite, but they never invited me back. You know? and, and I thought, why did I do that? I realized afterwards, I, I, just was, I wasn't even aiming at the right target, let alone the bullseye. I was so despondent when I sort of saw the magnitude of the how I blew it. I cringe to this day when I think of that. Now, I've got other things probably more serious than that, but, and maybe you do too. You know what? This lady, I think it's probably fair to say when she looked back at her life, maybe she had heard Jesus preach publicly and the conviction of her own lifestyle was coming over her. Maybe she had a cringe list. You know what? There's probably no maybe about it. She did. That's why she shows up at the house of a Pharisee to meet with the most righteous man that had ever walked the face of the earth and wash his feet. 
She stepped over all those insecurities and feelings of self-consciousness because she knew her need. It's more than the Pharisee did. Maybe this morning that's what God's saying to you. Do you understand your need? Do we know that? He says to her, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. I need to move on, but here's the thing that happens when we have a cringe list. We think life is over. We think, what's the point of even trying to to move on? What's the point? I don't have a future in God now. Not true. God sent Christ to make all things new. One of the ways he does that is he gives us back the future. Go in peace is what he says. All things new. Another way we see Christ making all things new is he brings us home. I have my little sheep here. I think maybe I've done the sheepy-beepy story before here. I can't remember. One of Jesus' most famous parables was the story of the lost sheep. The man has a hundred sheep. He keeps track of them. Every morning he sets them, brings them out of the pen, and as they exit the pen, he counts them. One, two, three, ba da ba da 97, 98, 99, 100. He knows his sheep. And in the evening, he does the whole same thing in reverse, and as they come back into the pen, he counts them. One, two, three, four. 97, 98, 99, 100. But one night he gets to 99 and there is no 100. Because the, the, one of his sheep is lost. When I do this with children, I call this little lamb Sheepy Beepy. There are villages in India where I've been more than once. And when we would pull into the village, and I'd been there before, the little village children up in the mountains would come running out, sheepy-beepy, sheepy-beepy, because they remembered hearing the story. The people there loved it. The shepherd goes out according to Jesus' story. I will confess the name sheepy-beepy is not there in the Greek. Okay, so that came in as part of church tradition. Around 1994, first time I went over there. He goes looking, sheepy-beepy, sheepy-beepy, and he's looking all over the place, and the sheep is hidden under Norm's chair, which is maybe not the most auspicious place to hide. (laughs) Sheepy-beepy, where are you? And he looks everywhere, he looks, and he searches, and he hunts, and he looks here, and he looks there, and no sheepy-beepy. And finally, according to the story, it's all in Luke 15, He finds him. And he reaches out and picks up this lost sheep. Now here is what I would argue is the most important part of this parable, and it's one of Christ's most important parables. He says this, Jesus says this about the shepherd. He picks up the sheep and sets the sheep on his shoulder... And then he brings the sheep home rejoicing. You know what he doesn't do? He, what we don't see in the story is he, he finds the lost sheep and picks it up by the back leg, you stupid sheep. 
carrying it all the way home, scolding it and administering disapproval. No. He sets it on his shoulder, rejoicing. Saints, hear me. Hear the word of God. In that story, that sheep is you. And that little one word that's so important in this story, he sets it on his shoulder, rejoicing, represents Christ's heart toward you. How does Christ come and now make all things new? By bringing us home. Taking the total meaning of that phrase, being brought home, that's a big idea. Getting brought home. If you're an emotional orphan, you need to be brought home to the home God has for you, which means knowing him as your father and Jesus as your elder brother. Being brought home. The lost sheep is you and me. And things get made new by allowing him to pick us up and put us on his shoulder rejoicing. It doesn't mean that the the sheep was rejoicing. It meant, which maybe it was at this point, it meant that the shepherd was rejoicing over carrying you home. Third thing, third way we see Christ making all things new. He becomes our focus. He becomes our focus. He's the new focus. Again, this is something I am revisiting here this morning, something we've taught about before. But this is so potent, I'm delighted to revisit it. When Jesus is at the table in Luke 24, it's when he had been raised from the dead, and two of his disciples had been on the road from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. Emmaus. This story takes place on the day that Jesus rises from the dead. But these two disciples, that's who they are, the two of Jesus' disciples, not part of the twelve, but part of the, the community that already believed in him, These two disciples were on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the day Jesus rises from the dead. But at this point in the story, when we meet them, they don't yet know Jesus has been raised. They don't realize he's alive. They're still grieving over his horrible death by crucifixion. They can't even get their heads around how this could all happen. Then a mysterious stranger sidles up to them as they're walking dejectedly along the road. They don't recognize this man, but Luke tells us he's the narrator. It's Jesus. It's the risen Jesus. But they don't know it initially. They say to him, would you like to have supper with us? Come come to us. Come have supper with us. And he says, yeah, okay, let's have supper. And he asks them, why, why are you so dejected? I can tell by your body language and your countenances. You seem extremely despondent. What is wrong? 
And then they ask an almost ironically comical question, are, the, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that does not know what has happened? What do you mean what has happened? And they, they tell him, it's, it's deliciously ironic, they're saying about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and in word, Don't, haven't you heard about him? <laughs> so he plays them along, it's almost like he says, oh, well, let's pretend that I haven't heard. Why don't you tell me about Jesus of Nazareth? And then they, they say this, there's sadness built into this scene. They say, we had hoped he was the one. I'm almost crying as I say those words. All of us here know what disappointment can be. It can be crippling. We had hoped he was the one. But our chief priests and the elders had him put to death. They turned him over to the Romans and they crucified him. Believe me, there was no worse way to go than by crucifixion. They crucified him. And then he starts telling them about himself without revealing who he was. And he says, foolish disciples, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is on Luke 24. Please do read it. Foolish disciples and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he asked this fateful question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Don't you see that in the prophets? It's there. And then he starts telling them according to Luke. Luke doesn't fill in the exact words Jesus used, but he goes back over the whole Old Testament, basically. I, I would dearly love to have an MP3 recording of that talk. I don't. He tells them, he summarizes the Old Testament by you, how it, and showing how it all ultimately focuses about on him. All this that you're telling me about, about this Jesus suffering, it had to happen. It was God's way of making all things new. At this point, they're in the middle of the meal in this little house in, in Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And he's finished explaining all this and he reaches out and he picks up the loaf of bread as part of the meal and then he breaks the bread and all it says, then their eyes were opened. How did that happen? Was it because in the act of breaking the loaf, it reminded them of the, the Last Supper? That's entirely possible. Did they all of a sudden, sudden notice the, the nail scars in his hands? That's entirely possible. By some way, maybe it was just revelation happening, the Holy Spirit, the, the story of Jesus, or Luke's story of Jesus, begins with the Holy Spirit giving Simeon revelation of who this chi- that child was, many years before, maybe it's simply the Holy Spirit once, once again enabling them to see what was right, right in front of them. Then their eyes were opened, is Luke's way of describing it. Those words are massively significant, and here's why, and with this we close. Their eyes were opened. Those are not random words. 
Luke 24:31 is a quotation from the book of Genesis. Because this is not the first time two people had their eyes opened to see something. In Genesis 3, 7, those identical words are written describing Adam and Eve, who have just finished eating, just like the two disciples. They just finished eating from the tree of knowledge, and the text in Genesis says, and their eyes were opened. And what Adam and Eve now saw, to their shock and horror and dismay, they saw their own nakedness. They were naked already, but they weren't ashamed. That was just the way life was before sin came in. Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked, and they, they ran and hid. They tried to cover themselves with leaves. They were embarrassed. It's the first instance of self-consciousness and embarrassment in human history, and it comes in on the back of sin. And self-consciousness that came in there, it never really left. We all know what self-consciousness feels like. We all know what shame feels like. So we come up with endless attempts and endless ways of covering our guilt, covering our shame, covering our embarrassment, covering our self-consciousness. New versions of leaves again and again. Their eyes were opened because they were focusing on their own sin and their own shame. But now, and please don't miss this, this this is a spiritual earthquake, what happens to these two disciples. Their eyes were opened, and they see in front of them at the table God's answer for the sin and shame and guilt that got in through Adam and Eve. The answer to all of that, especially the sense of shame, self-consciousness, all of that, the answer to all of that is the risen Savior sitting at that table in front of these two disciples. They see it. Their eyes were opened. Maybe the Holy Spirit is wanting to do that for you this morning. Open your eyes. You've probably heard about Jesus all your life. Most of us have. These two men thought they knew what they needed to know about Jesus, but the puzzle hadn't come together for them until this moment. And they realize now that his death was not an accident. His death was part of a plan. But it also wasn't the end of the story because he'd been raised from the dead. They get up from the... Then he disappears. He vanishes into thin air, which the risen Jesus did several times. And they just get up and they hightail it. It's late at night by this time. They go all the way back to Jerusalem. Luke says it's seven miles. They go running back to Jerusalem and they burst into some gathering at late at night there with the other disciples. And they say, we've just seen Jesus. He's alive. And the disciples in Jerusalem say, yes, 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 we know. We know. He's already appealed to Simon. And they're all rejoicing. And then Jesus appears one, one more time yet in front of them. In the moment, their eyes were opened and they wanted to get, they just wanted to go and tell someone, do you see what's happening? They weren't, they, they were no longer at that point preoccupied with themselves.
They, weren't, they were no longer at that point focusing on themselves. They were focusing on him. How does he make all things new? By changing our focus. Hugely important thing to ask about. What am I focused on at this point in my life? On myself, even if it's on my shame and guilt, or on God's answer to my shame and guilt, the crucified and risen Savior. That's where we can focus. To wrap up, all things new. Here's some takeaways, just three. Do we believe that he gives us back the future? When you're covered with your cringe-style memories, you're very vulnerable to saying, I don't have a future, I've blown it so bad. Well, God says no to that. He says, I sent my son to give you back the future you think you sabotaged and sent into the tank. He came to give that back to you so you can go in peace. Go in peace. You have not only Christ's permission, you have his command, his exhortation. Go in peace, he says. Do we believe that he carries us home? Not only does he carry us home on his shoulder, he carries us home rejoicing. He carries us home rejoicing. He does not see you as a nuisance or a bother. He sees you as his sheep and himself as the shepherd. Do we believe finally that we can leave off focusing on our failures and just delight in focusing on him? Let me pray. Father, we have something in common here this morning, every single one of us without exception, and that is that we need to be made to be made new. I know I speak for all my friends. We need to be made new, and we thank you that you've provided the way for that making new to happen, and that was sending Christ. Jesus, this morning we worship you. We want to be like the Emmaus disciples and get up and run and tell someone. We thank you. He's the one that makes everything new. He's the comfort of Israel. Lord, we thank you for the honor of your name. Amen.